You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. British writer Sir Arthur Conan Doyle created Sherlock Holmes to be the greatest detective in the world. But he didn't give him superpowers. He, he was just a normal person with one exception. He had a very keen eye for observation. In one of his uh, books, A Scandal in Bohemia, Holmes is instructing Watson on the difference between seeing and observing. So here's Watson talking. He says, when I hear you give your reasons, the thing always appears to me to be ridiculously simple that I could easily do it myself. Though at each successive instance of your reasoning, I'm baffled until you explain your process. And yet I believe that my eyes are as good as yours. So in other words, he's saying, up until the moment that you explain it, I really don't know what's going on. But then you explain it and it's like, oh, it seems so simple. And all you're doing is really just looking at the room. And he's like, I think we both have good eyes. That's what's going on. Holmes answered, quite so. You see, but you do not observe. The distinction is clear. For example, you have frequently seen the steps which lead up from the hall to this room. And Watson answers, frequently. Holmes asks, how often? Well, some hundreds of times. Then Holmes asks, well, then how many are there? Watson says, how many? I don't know. Holmes says, quite so. You have not observed, and yet you have seen. And that is just my point. Now, I know that there are 17 steps because I have both seen and observed. What makes Sherlock Holmes such a great detective is he goes beyond just seeing to the point of observation. He's meticulous in his process and methodology. He, he comes to every crime scene with a blank slate. He doesn't begin with a presupposed or predetermined theory to then, uh, by his own biases, find the evidence that supports his theory. No, he comes into the room with no theory and says, let, I want to let the, uh, the, the details and the, the evidence support the theory. He walks into the room and he begins to observe. No detail is considered irrelevant. And then he takes all of these good observations, and then he combines them with good questions, and he begins to draw inferences by way of induction towards possible theories that can explain all that he sees. See, Holmes is a brilliant detective because he's able to be mindful of the mundane and observant of the obvious. He's able to go beyond mere seeing to the point of observation. Now this morning, the preacher in Ecclesiastes takes us beyond seeing to the point of keen observation. It's actually the methodology of this entire book. Most uh, sections begin with uh, things like, um, again I saw, and moreover I saw. See, he spent a lifetime of observing life under the sun, and he's made some keen observations, and then he's written this book to show us how to live. Now, a lot of people think that this is, the, uh, this is Solomon kind of deconstructing his faith. 
This is not a treatise on the meaninglessness of the world. Rather, this is not a man who, who's lost his faith. It's actually a man who's, uh, who's looking at the world with incredible faith. He's looking at the world and saying, from a place of faith, how can I make sense of all that I see? He's willing to look at both the beauty and the brokenness and ask, what matters most? What matters most? It's not that some things don't matter. It's just that he wants to know ultimately what matters most. So in chapter 1, the sledgehammer drops as the preacher makes his first big observation that everything, absolutely everything, is plagued by vanity. It's brief. Life is very brief. Meaning is often elusive. You and I live in that fraction of time between forgotten and will be forgotten. And then in chapter 2, the preacher walks us through this lifelong journey to see what, if anything in the world, can bring lasting satisfaction. And here's what he found. Good things are good. Only if they're used and valued in their proper place. But the moment we take good things and make them ultimate things, they, uh, they, they turn us on ourselves and they don't provide lasting satisfaction. And then last week we looked at the first half of chapter 3 where the preacher asked, well, if nothing in this world can bring lasting satisfaction, then what are we supposed to do with our limited time? And his conclusion was simple yet profound. He told us to be thoughtful and reflective of our time. He told us to be appreciative of the ebbs and flows of life. We have seasons that come and go. That we should learn to be expectant that uh, the, 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 the seasons will change. And to receive all of life as a gift with gratitude and joy from our good God. And now, in our next section, the preacher is going to continue to examine life to see and make meaningful observations about life in a broken world. We'll see multiple times in this text. Moreover, I saw, and then I saw, again, I saw. And he's coming to look at the world and say, how do we live in this broken world? All of these observations are observations about life in a broken world. And our text breaks down into three main observations. So first, in verses uh, 3, 16 through chapter 4, verse 3, we'll see the devastation of injustice. When he looks out the world, he says there's injustice. And we're going to find out how do we live in a world that's broken with injustice. Second, in verses 4 to 6, we'll see the destruction of envy. As he looks at our drive, the main driving force behind all of our work, he's going to go, if we're really honest, it's envy. It's this kind of comparative discontent that drives us in our work. And then third, in verses 4, chapter 4, 7 through 16, we'll see the desolation of loneliness. Because of our sin, we do not do community well. We often are driven towards isolation and self-sufficiency, and it leads to loneliness. So let's pick up where we left off, chapter 3, verse 16, as we look at the devastation of injustice. Here again, the word of the Lord. Verse 16, moreover, I saw, you see that observation language, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. See, the preacher observes that there's injustice in the place of justice, wickedness in the place of righteousness. 
all the language that's being used here should make you think of a courtroom. It's all courtroom language. So the halls of, of justice where you would expect uh, equity, impartiality, and truth. You would expect them to be rigorously upheld. They've become the halls of injustice where falsehood, partiality, and inequality reign. The disorder of injustice upends God's good created order. And it's yet another reminder that we live in a sin-soaked, broken world. And though the picture here is one of judiciary injustice, in a few verses he's going to talk about uh, oppression in general. So the idea here is that we live in a world marked by corruption, injustice, and oppression. And they are observable realities in all facets of society. In other words, there's no section of our world that you can't look at and see some kind of injustice and brokenness and oppression. So here's the reality. We are broken people. We make broken policies and our brokenness and that creates broken structures and so the result is not only are we broken but the but the systems we create have flaws in them they they often don't do the things we want them to do sin permeates the totality of humanity so here's what that means every part of you Every aspect of you, every faculty, soul and body, mind and heart, will and emotions have been corrupted by sin. It doesn't mean that you're as bad as you could be. It just means that every part of you is plagued by sin. So even in your best intentions, when you try to go and you're going, I want to do something good, because of sin, it doesn't always work out the way we want it to. And if I think if you're thoughtful about your own life, how many times have you said, That wasn't my intention, but it still went bad. It still broke bad. Because that's what sin does. It, it, It just breaks everything all around us. And as a result, that same sin that breaks us also uh, permeates into the structures we create. How many of you know that there's a thing called the Corruption Perception Index? Anybody ever heard of that? The CPI, Corruption Perception Index. It's put together by an international organization called Transparency International. And it looks at, it's a worldwide nonprofit organization operating in over 180 countries. And what they do is they track corruption in the public sphere. Okay, so that's like the government side of things. So it tracks things like bribery and how public funds are dispersed. And uh, they, look, they look at a country's ability to uh, contain corruption, to prosecute corruption, to provide legal protection against those who expose corruption. And the way it works is the higher the number, so if you get a high score, your country is uh, uh, some of the best in the world, least corrupt. And then if you get a low score, you're, you're really, really corrupt. So a zero would be super corrupt, okay? And then 100 is a perfect score, which won't happen until Jesus comes back and he's the one in charge of everything, okay? But here's the deal. The highest score this last year was 88. And it wasn't America. America got a 67. So, like, not great, you know? What is that, like a D in school? You know, D for degree. It ranked 27th in the list. Now here's what's sobering. The average score across all countries, 43. 
It's terrible, right? So here's what that means. More instances than not, I mean all across the world, there's more corruption in government than there is uh, uh, wholeness and, 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 and real good. See, corruption is a widespread global human problem. On the whole, the public sector is more corrupt than fair. And I'm guessing you didn't need this statistical proof to tell you that. Right? You just look at the headlines. You, you see what's coming in on your news feeds and you go, there's corruption all around the world. We see it in headlines. We know it in our hearts. And because we are made in the image of God, we are hardwired for justice. What that means is, we hear these headlines of injustice, we see these great atrocities being done in the world, and it, and it does something to us. There's an impulse in us that says, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And the reason you have that reaction is because you're made in the image of a God who is himself perfect justice and righteousness. Isaiah 61, 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. Isaiah 30, 18, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. Deuteronomy 32, 4, the rock, that's the Lord, his work is perfect. All his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. These are just a few. We, we could spend our whole time just walking through all the verses that talk about God's character of justice, his concern for justice, how he's working for justice. And even though the image of God in us has been marred and, and broken, one of the beautiful realities is our impulse for justice remains. That's why when we hear those things, it, it, it hurts. We feel something. Now look where Solomon goes next. So Solomon's making that same observation that you and I could easily make. And then he says, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. So he makes the observation that injustice is prevalent in all the world. Another reality of the vanity and futility. And then he starts to speak truth to his own heart. He reminds himself of the truth that there's coming a time when God will judge the righteous and the wicked. But as a side note, we have got to learn how to do that. We have got to learn how to, how to see hard things in the world and then take all that good stored up truth that we've spent time learning about and then speak that truth to our own hearts. And what does he say? Of the many seasons of time, there is Coming a time when injustice will come to an end. There's coming a time when oppression will come to an end. Commentator Derek Kidner writes, For if anything cries out to be reversed, it is injustice. Here at last is some obvious gain from the twists and turns of our affairs. The fact that everything on earth is seasonal promises an end to the long winter of evil and misrule. That is good news. And it's incredibly instructive for us. So we can, as the people of God, we can and we should work to make the world a more just place for people. That is good Christian work. We preached a whole sermon series on uh, a justice uh, a couple years ago. We looked at um, justice for the unborn, 
marginalized, the poor, the vulnerable. We talked about that hard conversation around recon uh, racial reconciliation. We've got a page uh, on, our, on our website, a whole, web, a whole page that just seeks to equip our church to learn more about uh, matters of injustice, to, to be informed on how to pray for these matters of injustice, and how to act in some good organizations that you can get involved in whatever uh, areas of injustice that the Lord directs you to. It gives us something to take our impulse for justice and put it into action. At the same time, Solomon also knows that until the root of all of that injustice is removed, until sin is finally and totally and completely removed, injustice will continue to linger. That's why Jesus said things like, you will always have the poor among you. He wasn't saying don't work to end poverty. He was just saying, listen, it's just a problem bigger than you have capacity, ability to completely eradicate on your own. Because you're human. You're limited. You, it, 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 it's a God-sized problem that takes a God-sized Savior. Though progress is made in certain areas, and in a lot of ways the world is a more just place than it was in times past, the reality is that that progress is relative. The more things change, the more they remain the same. I, I think of it kind of like that game, Whack-A-Mole. You remember that game? Okay, you're sitting there, you're ready to go, you got your little mallet. The mole comes up, boom, mole gone. But what happens? Another one comes up, boom. And at the beginning, you're like, I got this, right? I can get all these moles, I'm killing it. But then the moles go insane and it's like, mole, 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 three, four. And you can't, it's too much, right? That, that's how progress works. We're able to, to, to get a mole over here, but while we're focused on this one, one pops up behind you. And then you turn and you come over here, but, but the, it's just the way, the way things work in a broken world. Here's an example. Did you know that there are more slaves today, right now, than were seized from Africa in four centuries of the transatlantic slave trade? In fact, there are more slaves in the world today than at any other point in human history. That's shocking because we don't see it. In, in a world where there's like cameras everywhere, you would think we would know that. It would be obvious to us. But it is so underground that we just don't recognize it and realize it. And we would think we're doing so good in that area. In actuality, we're doing terrible in that area. There are an estimated 21 million people in bondage across the globe through human trafficking. So the point isn't don't work hard for justice. Work hard, but hold out hope. Don't succumb to despair because injustice will have its day of judgment. And it will be the Lord who judges the righteous and the wicked. See, ours is a work of alleviation, but God's work is the one of eradication. And those are two completely different things. Now listen to what the preacher says next. Verse 18, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. This is a tough passage. It's often easily misunderstood. 
Some suggest that Solomon has no concept of the afterlife. I don't think that's the case. I think this is one of those passages that you should read a few times and consider the larger context. First, remember, earlier in chapter 3, verse 11, Solomon writes that God has placed eternity into the hearts of man. You know why every single person longs for life beyond this life? Because God has put that desire there. He knows, Solomon knows, we were made for a time beyond our time. You also have to realize this is the son of David. One of the most prolific psalm writers who often wrote of life beyond this life. Psalm 16, 10 to 11. David writes, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Solomon is not agnostic as it relates to the afterlife. Though his concept of the afterlife is not as developed as ours is, since we have all of canon and now we know of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But he clearly knows that when we die, we face judgment. And by grace through faith, God will not abandon us to darkness, but will bring us into his presence where there's fullness of joy. Now, with that context, let's unpack these verses. So what is he saying? Solomon is basically saying... That as we observe the presence of injustice in the world, it's a powerful reminder of our own corruption and mortality. See, one of the problems with see, seeing prevalent injustice out there is that we, by comparison, we can be blind to our own sin and corruption. See, under the, see when we see that kind of um, corruption out there, by comparison, we think, well, I'm doing pretty good. You know, like, I'm, I'm not enslaving anybody, so we think I'm... I'm a pretty good guy, right? I'm not like a, a, a human trafficker, a corrupt politician, or, you know. And so this section is meant to bring us face to face with our own corruption and our own mortality. He compares us to animals to show us that we have something in common with them. Namely, that just like animals die, humans die. And friends, why do we die? Remember when we walked through Genesis? We die because of sin. Our sin brings death. That's the ultimate consequence for sin. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Animals die and return to the earth. And likewise, so will we. And that reality is supposed to bring meaning and weight to our actions. To know that one day we will be brought under judgment. Now, if you're just living life under the sun and you see people die, you go to a funeral, you see them buried and put six feet under, what he's saying is it's hard to know just by that mere observation what happens to people when they die. That's why he says, who, who knows what will happen? And he's reflecting on the reality that even the best of observers can't see uh, doesn't, it doesn't provide clarity and certainty on what happens to a person after they die. See, that's precisely why we need special revelation from God. So that we have a clear answer from someone beyond the sun to tell us what happens to us when we die. How we can escape judgment and enter into the presence of God forevermore. So then Solomon says, what are we to do in this life under the sun? Knowing that one day we'll die and face judgment. Look what he says in verse 22. So I saw that there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. 
who can bring him to see what will be after him? If you've been tracking, you notice Solomon is repeating something he's already said. Enjoy the time God has given you. Rejoice in your work. There's something just good about a hard day's work. And then he gives another rhetorical question. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Remember when we began this this book, I told you that there would be about 30 of these rhetorical questions throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And rhetorical questions are meant to be pondered. They're meant to be, uh, uh, you're meant to slow down and think and reflect on these questions. And I think the reader is meant to think about this question. To say, if I can't figure out what happens to me when I die just by looking around, then where else can I look? Or who can I look to to tell me? What will happen to me when I die? Who can bring a person to see what happens to us after we die? Solomon's question is meant to get us not to look under the sun for that answer to the question, but beyond the sun. Now these last few verses in this long section. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. So here's what the preacher's doing. He's restating that first observation that the world is full of oppression There are oppressors and the oppressed, and right now there seems to be no relief. There's no lasting, meaningful relief from oppression. And even those who are themselves oppressors are in some ways oppressed because the tyranny of their own sin brings about a certain kind of misery. In other words, he's saying everyone and everything is broken. And then what follows from there is lament. And that's something our culture doesn't do very well. Many people read this and they see it as depressing, even maybe a cynical outlook on life. And I I disagree. I think the preacher is just being human. He's saying when you really take the time to look around at all the evil and brokenness and oppression in the world, it should lead everyone to go, gosh, this is a terrible place. It seems like it might be better off if we were dead. Seems like it might even be better off if we had never been born at all. What he's doing is expressing deep anguish for what he sees in the world. He has faith to say out loud what is often unspoken in our hearts. That the brokenness of the world can often lead us to a point where we're broken and we say, well, what's the point of it all? Why all the suffering? Why all the hurt? And I think this is one of the many examples in the Bible that says, you are free to be human. You're free to feel broken. You are free to feel deep anguish. In fact, it's right to feel that way. The preacher is saying, you should try it. Give a voice to your hurt. Don't try to bury it. Don't try to cover it up with niceties. It's okay to say out loud, What you feel deep in your heart. Express your anguish as you see the brokenness in the world. So earlier I said that 
each of these observations was, was given to ask, how do we live in a broken world and give some direction? Here's what Solomon is saying. How do you live in a world that's devastated by injustice? You first come to grips with the reality of it. Be willing to observe it. Be willing to call it what it is. Don't deny it. Don't pretend it's not there because it's real and it's observable if we're paying attention. Second, trust that there's coming a day when the Lord will bring it to an end. There will come an end to this temporary season of injustice with his glorious eternal reign of justice and righteousness. And third, Solomon says, feel the freedom and the invitation to lament. We were made with emotions. And when those come up, it's good to experience them and to feel them. David Gibson writes, will there ever be a time for justice? The answer is yes. God will retrieve every single injustice, every single time, and every single activity, every single deed that has ever broken his holy law and tarnished his beautiful world and damaged his image bearers. Every one of those moments will be answerable to God. Every tear and every sighing sorrow for my wrongs, whether through things I have done or had done to me, each one will be sought out by the God who is perfect justice, truth, mercy, and love. Now let's turn to the next observation, the destruction of envy. Verse 4, Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work comes from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. So after looking at injustice, now he turns to another observation, another uh, reality of the brokenness of our world and he, and he observes that much of our work and much of our toil is driven by envy now first i don't think what he mean i don't think all here means all i don't think that the preacher means that he has no category for work that is driven by some other uh, motivation oftentimes uh, we 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 use this uh, this literary device of hyperbole in order to make the point and i think that's what he's doing he's saying Maybe not every single instance, but much of it. Much of our work is driven by envy. So what is envy? Envy is comparative discontentment. Comparative discontentment, meaning envy is, it's relational. You, you look at someone else and you see what they have. And by comparison, you start to feel discontent by it. You look at others and you want what they have. Could be their looks. Could be their status. It could be their possessions, it could be their career, it could be their talent. Whatever it is, you see something that they have and you don't have it and you want it. And there starts to, uh, the, the seed of envy is born. And it grows into discontentment and it begins to sprout. Tim Keller says this on envy. Envy is wanting somebody else's life. You see they have something better than you. And instead of rejoicing in the good that they have, you weep over the fact that you don't have it. But envy goes beyond that. And envy, we don't just want other people's lives, we resent their lives. You're angry about it. You hate it. Therefore, here's what envy is. Envy is being unhappy at other people's happiness. And envy is happy at other people's unhappiness. Now there's an impulse in us to want to deny this reality. But if we're honest, we know that comparative discontent drives much 
of what we do. Here's a few questions to consider as you think about envy in your own life. Do you find it difficult for you to celebrate the accomplishments and joys of others? Like you hear someone's good news and like maybe you're really, you got a great poker face and so you, you, you make the right nonverbal reaction, you say the right things, but in your heart you're like, him, her, I deserve that. That should have been me. How did they get the promotion? They got a bonus? I've been working here for much longer than them. They're not even that good at their job. That's how envy works. Who is the person in your life that you find you're constantly comparing yourself to? Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe you don't even know them. In a world of social media, we know people that we, have, that we know nothing about. And we look at their lives and we become envious. Do you find yourself saying things like, I deserve blank more than they do? If you've had those thoughts, if you feel those impulses, that's envy. And the preacher says that envy is one of the hidden, heart-level, sinful motivations that drives much of our work. He also writes in Proverbs 14.30, this is Solomon, a tranquil, a, a tranquil heart gives life to flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. Envy will make your bones rot. It will make us selfish, self-centered, and entitled, and it will destroy deep relationships. Because envy is relational, it's comparative discontent, it makes it really uh, difficult, if not impossible, for us to have deep and meaningful relationships. Envy is a cancer that eats away at your heart and it begins to destroy community. And Solomon says this drive towards comparative discontent is like chasing after the wind. It's futile. It's vanity. You can't catch it. Now the preacher gives us some direction as to how to approach our work. And he does so by proverbial wisdom. So look at verse 5. Here's the first one. He says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So this proverb is saying, well, if some of you look at this drive of envy and say, well, if my work often has sinful motivations and ultimately my work is just futile and a chasing after the wind, then I won't do anything. I won't work. And so the picture here is of one who's given up on work altogether. He's folded his hands, and it's a picture of laziness and inactivity. Now what happens if you stay in that place of inactivity? You fold your hands and you just sit there on your couch. Well, before long, without work, all you have left to eat is your own flesh. Now that is a graphic picture of the foolishness and stupidity of laziness as an answer to the problem, right? So that's one extreme. So Solomon's saying, listen, I know envy drives much of our work, but like abject laziness, that's not the answer. So what's the other answer? Here's the other solution. Better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of toil striving after the wind. Now this proverb is getting at uh, is getting at uh, giving up the rat race of constant work and endless comparison for the peace that comes from contentment. 
So the lie of discontentment says, I'll be happy when I obtain. But the reality is, is that happiness quickly fades. And the goal of life isn't happiness anyway. It's contentment. G.K. Chesterton once said, there are two ways to get enough. One is to continue to accumulate more and more. And the other is to desire less. That lowering of your desires is the secret to contentment. The preacher has observed that often our work and toil is driven by comparative discontent. And so instead of having uh, one extreme of laziness or this other extreme of, of constant work, he's calling us to a life of contentment and moderation somewhere in the middle. His advice is search your heart. See where envy is driving the things that you do. Learn contentment. Do the hard work of lowering your desires. Be grateful for what you have. Stop comparing yourself to others. Work hard enough to earn an income and a living, but not so hard that your hands are just full of toil with no time for quietness and rest. Now here's our final observation the desolation of loneliness verse 7 solomon says again i saw vanity under the sun one person who has no other neither son or brother yet there is no end to all his toil and his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks for whom am i toiling and depriving myself of pleasure this also is vanity and an unhappy business here the preacher observes another vanity of life under the sun the person who's acquired much wealth but lacks meaningful relationships. No matter how much wealth or riches this person acquires, it's never enough to make him happy or quench his desire for more. You see that in the text? He's never satisfied. This is the person who has everything he or she wants. It's not even enough, and yet they have no one to share it with. Now this can certainly be a person who works and works and never gets married, never has children, never has friendships, never spends time with his family and chooses to live a life of, of isolation. But this can also be a person with a family, with lots of colleagues, with, with, with lots of acquaintances, but is so consumed with work and chasing achievement after pointless achievement that he's never present with the people in his home or at his table. One author has said the belief that there's some future moment more worth our presence than the one we're in right now is why we miss our lives. It's this reality of never being present where we're present. Having your mind somewhere else, even when you're there, you're distracted all the time because all, you're constantly working. It never stops. Friends, busyness like this obscures the beautiful. A life of busyness obscures the beautiful. One of the problems of our sin is that we have this tendency to trivialize the significant and to make the significant trivial. You know what that means? We spend so much time worrying about things that really don't matter. And we elevate them to the place of significance. Sacrificing the significance and lowering them to be trivial. That's the vanity that he's talking about here. The preacher says the result of this kind of life is loneliness and isolation and no one to share the fruit 
of his labor. Now I want us to skip down to verse 13. There's a little story here. Solomon says, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So you got two characters. You got this young guy who's wise. We got this king who's foolish. He's unteachable. Now speaking of this young man, he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. So it's like a rags to riches story here. Solomon says, I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people of all of whom he led. Yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. This is a short parable that tells of a king who had become foolish and unteachable. And he was replaced by a wise and younger king. It's a rags to riches story where this poor young kid who's wise, works his way all the way up to the top. He becomes popular. He goes from the drudges of poverty all the way to the throne. And he was popular and given his wisdom. The implication is that he was a better king than the one before him. But if you're starting to get to the, if you, uh, if you're starting to get the point of Ecclesiastes, you know his popularity doesn't last long. Because his approval ratings drop. And Solomon says, this too is a striving after the wind. You see that when he says, yet there will be those who come later who don't rejoice in him. What's the point of this little parable? It's simply this. You can be a worker in the workplace, in the workforce. You can be a king on the throne. But either way, riches, popularity, power, it's all fleeting. It's all fragile. It all comes and goes. And the preacher's saying, that's not where you're supposed to make your main investment in life. Your main investment is not supposed to be your work, your career, your legacy, driving your way all the way to the top. That's not where you're supposed to aim for meaning and significance. What you're supposed to do is to invest in meaningful friendship, community, and relationships. That's the whole point of verses 9 to 12. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Here, as an antidote to the fleetingness and the futility of work and riches. To the isolation that comes from a life that is completely invested in work. He says, friendship, meaningful relationships provide a better return. A better reward, a better profit than the rivalry of envious work. Not only does the preacher say it's financially more beneficial to work together in partnership, he says you also get the added blessing of friendship. And not only that, that friendship and that partnership is helpful when you fall. Again, think about everything that Solomon's been saying. This is a world marked by hevel. Remember that that Hebrew word that means Vanity, futility, and brokenness in a world marked by hevel, you can expect failure and falls. You can expect to get knocked down. When you get knocked down, you shouldn't be going, what's going on? You should be going, of course. That's what this world is like. And loneliness is only exacerbated and and the pain of it felt in the pitfalls of life when you're alone. But when you fall down, what happens? If you've built and invested 
and friendships. There's someone there to pick you up. I remember when we first moved here, we started doing some ministry with the Community Day Center. And uh, we sat with, uh, with Carolyn, who, who runs the center. And we were, uh, she's, you know, worked with the homeless for years. And we were just talking about her experience and her time. And, and, and I, I just asked her, I said, what, you know, what basically, if you, in, in all your time, what causes homelessness? And she said, you know, it, it's not about failure. It's not about hardships because that happens to everybody. Poverty and homelessness doesn't happen when you run out of money. It happens when you run out of relationships. And I thought, that might be one of the most profound things I've ever heard. That's true poverty. When you've run out of relationships. That's what this is saying. When you fall down, and you will, if you've invested in meaningful friendships, there will be someone there to pick you up. Verse 11, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? See, not only is meaningful friendship beneficial, friendships bring warmth to life. In this example, you can picture two people lying close together to keep warm. Their mutual body heat helps insulate and, and warm the other. Think of a survival situation. You're in a cold climate. You've been stranded there. Keeping close together could be the difference between life and death. And I think we're supposed to take this example and extend the analogy that friendship provides warmth and life. In a world plagued by Hevel, life is often cold and cruel. But you know what makes it tolerable? You know what makes it enjoyable? Friendship. When you go through the storms and winters of life, Solomon's saying, you need friends to keep warm. Verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. What he's saying is the isolated woman is an easy target. The lonely man is easily overcome. But two is better. And guess what? Three is best. See, the preacher is saying what we all know to be true. That we need community. You don't have real community until there's a plurality of three. We weren't meant to do life alone. Friendship and community isn't easy. Listen, there are going to be conflicts. You're going to look at your calendar. It's going to fill up very quickly. There are going to be days when you go, I don't want to do this. There are going to be people that you're like, I, I'd rather not talk to them. There will be conflicts. You can expect misunderstandings. People are going to say things that don't come off the right way. They're not going to say it exactly perfect. Feelings are going to get hurt. That's just the reality of living in a sin-soaked, broken world. It will take your time. It will take your energy. And friends, if you invest in meaningful friendships, it's going to uh, cost you money too. But it is worth it. Living connected to people not only will provide help when you're down not only will it provide warmth when you're cold it will tether you to a place and make it a home proverbs 18 24 a man of many companions may come to ruin but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother this is the kind of friendship solomon is talking about here the kind of friend 
that in one way is no longer really a friend, but they become like a brother or a sister. Community that becomes family. Companions are good. You need acquaintances in this life. But what we really need, the antidote to loneliness, is real friendships. Friends, look around you. You will observe a world that is just like the world the preacher lived in. The more things change, the more they stay the same. It is the same broken, heaven-plagued, sin-soaked world. This is a world where injustice is the norm. It's a world where our hearts are constantly discontented, driven by envy. It's a world where loneliness is the status quo. We are more digitally connected than ever before. And yet, loneliness was declared by the Surgeon General to be the latest epidemic. It's a world where people from the dust continue to return to the dust. Solomon could only hope that one day... Someone would come to wipe the tears of the oppressed and the tears of the oppressors. Solomon longed for a day where someone would come to mend our broken hearts, to free us from the prison of envy. Solomon longed for a day when one would come to be a friend to us who would stick closer than a brother. Solomon longed for a day and hoped for a day where people from the dust could become people from heaven. And what Solomon couldn't see, we can see in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47 to 49, says this, the first man, that's Adam, was from the earth, a man of the dust. But the second man, speaking of Christ, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. See, just as we have borne the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Here's what Paul's saying. Jesus is the son of God who has come from heaven, who has become like the dust that we are. He has taken on our dust, so to speak, in order to redeem us from the dust. And when we put our faith in him, our dust is redeemed. That's how our sins of injustice are paid. That's how the envy of our hearts are mended. That's how we find true and lasting companionship. That's how the people of the dust become the people of heaven. When we put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ. So how do we live in a broken world? Let's work hard to alleviate injustice. Let's lament what's lamentable. And let's trust that one day God will make it all right. Let's learn the grateful contentment for what we have and stop comparing ourselves to others. Let's build, let's build deep and meaningful community and resist the foolishness of self-sufficiency. But most of all, how do we live in a broken world? By putting our faith and hope in Jesus Christ who has secured our redemption. Let's pray.